Everybody listen to We're Not Wizards. Because we are the best. And we're not wizards. No matter what anybody says. Goodbye. Welcome to another episode of We're Not Wizards. My name's Richard. I'll be your host for whenever. Because let's just kick back. Let's face it. Things could potentially be said to be a little bit grim. Things could be said to be a little bit tidal. Things could be said to be... You want some kind of protective canopy over yourself. You know, you don't want to stop and the march of time or even the march of the ants you know it's whether or not you want to be the big boss in town or just settle down and be the little pig and there's only one person who sums up all of these various different things um i'm not going to hide who he is there's not going to be any type of grim masquerade here um joining me i've got tim eisner Hi, Tim. Thank you for the wonderful intro. That was, you know, the hype. It was just building up and building up that I got a little bit panicked and, you know, had to take a quick uh, quick break, check my sanity and see if I could deliver on all those things. Um, but How I, are you doing? I'm doing, you know, I'm doing good. I took, took some deep breaths and I'm ready to go. It's been, I mean, I think you should not only take some some deep breaths, you should potentially take yourself a little bit of a rest because it's like one of the things I'll tell you, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it is, Tim, is that on occasion I do some research Ah. and I'll, and I'll do, I'll do a search on Board Game Geek and I'll check kind of like, like an artist, like somebody's discography and you you have been very, very prolific. I mean, I mean, I know I try to fit in quite a few kind of different things into the intros, but if I'm looking at this, I mean, I mean, this year alone, we've talked about kind of like March of the Ants, you know, um, you had Wonderland's War. I mean, going back into last year, you had the huge success with like kind of like Tidal Blades, um, you've had the grim masquerade. You've had the. Ugh, I mean, are you actually going to sit down and take five minutes to yourself and you know enjoy, smell the coffee? As oh, you would actually oh see. man! You know that's actually one of the things on my to-do list, which is quite long <laughs> and extensive, um, but it keeps getting pushed down. So, but in all in all seriousness, it is something I, I sort of struggle with and have been trying to like take a little bit of a break, take a breather. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just get really excited about games and I keep telling like my brother or my partner, I'm like, Oh, I'm going to start doing less. You know, I'm going to take a little break, not take on as many mm-hmm. projects. And then like, I'll be trying to sleep one night and I'll think up a new game idea and I'll be like, Oh, cool. Look, I got this new game idea. I'm going to work on this and I'm going to get this going. So <laughs> it's, 
uh, you know, I'm, I think I'm getting better, but it's it's really hard to say because I I kind of am addicted to like creative projects and like making things and board games have been really fun to work on. So um, I'm trying to take a break. I keep trying, but then fun opportunities keep coming along with uh, cool games and good people to collaborate with. So is this what you is this what you're doing on like a full time basis? There's not like you know you don't have like a part time job in like a sandwich shop or something like this. Is ge- making games? Is this what you kind of do all the time? It is actually yeah. I am lucky enough to be making games full time. I was working in a sandwich shop in college, <laughs> with a bagel shop, but that was you know it was good, but you know didn't really pan out in the long run. <laughs> so. But See, it, I do my research. I do my research. I do there was some kind of snack system involved. Some, something in there, definitely. I mean, I do really enjoy snacks too. So that's the other sort of main but thing I, that occupies I, I my didn't want to say, you know, there is such a thing as quarantine belly. And, you know, being a man in my, my middle age, I've certainly kind of looked down and went, I didn't realize... <laughs> I didn't realize that was there. It's like <laughs> I didn't realize I was carrying like a tire now. I mean, for goodness sake, you know. You're like, oh, just keeps keeps growing. Um, so yeah, since uh, Grim Forest was a was super successful, um, hmm. since that time, I've been able to take you know dedicate to working on board games full time. Before then, it was sort of I'd work on it full time for a couple months and then go work hmm. another job and then come back. And so, but it's been really nice to have it be my full focus. Um, so what's your current kind of employment situation? Are you kind of working mostly with kind of – are you employed by Skybound particularly or are you kind of like their head guy that they go to in terms of the game design side of things? You know, that's a good question that a lot of people have asked me. Like I've gone to a couple conventions and publishers are like, "Are you? do you just work with Skybound or are you like – do you have other games? And I'm uh, – so – I just, I, I'm self-employed. I work for myself. Uh, I have mm. uh, Weird City Games, which I do, you know, some of my own titles, March of the Ants, and then uh, Canada, yeah. which is upcoming. And then mainly I've been doing design work with Skybound. So, and I've sort of been their main uh, designer, although they're, they're, they're branching out and they've been working with other designers, which is great. Um, mm-hmm. But... You know, I did the March of the Ants campaign, uh, the first one, which was a while back, uh, about five or six years. And that's how I got into board game design and did another one. And then I wanted to sort of experiment with the publisher side of things because a lot of people are like, oh, should I kickstart or should I try and pitch to a publisher? And so I was curious to see what would be you know, more interesting or more fulfilling. And, you know, there's there's good things on both sides. And um, so now I'm just sort of... I went heavy into the pub working with publishers for a while, and now I'm sort of back onto doing some of my independent stuff. Where, <clears throat> where's the creative stuff come from? I mean, if we set the way back clock, um, <clears throat> I mean, where did that kind of start off? I mean, were you have you always been quite had you always been quite creative as a child? Was it something that you found yourself kind of becoming more interested as it grew up? I mean, you know, how did, how did you kind of start off, I guess? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think it was pretty early on. Um, and I think one of the main influences was uh, my dad, uh, Keith Eisner. He used to tell us these fantastic stories. So he would just make up stories about characters and sort of create these worlds out of nothing. And so I think that really 
uh, sparked a lot of interest there. And then I also had the, I was lucky enough to go to a Waldorf school, which is a sort of alternative right. private schooling method that is very focused on creativity and very focused on, you know, personal expression. And so we didn't learn to like read or write in Waldorf until fourth grade, which is a little abnormal. Um, but we did lots of watercolor and sort of plays and drama and sewing and all sorts of stuff like that. And so, wow. so that took, you know, I didn't really realize until I was in college and then I was looking back and like some of the like little doodles I draw or some of the drawings, I'd be like, oh, this is some patterns I learned back in Waldorf. And I think just that sort of early focus on creativity in that schooling method really pushed me to like accept and pursue that a creative, a more creative path. Is that how you continued in your kind of like your career? I mean, what it was that you you mentioned what is it was it you did in college um so not entirely in college i ended up going um getting a major in spanish language Um, yeah which i had started studying in in high school and was interested in and traveled abroad lived in spain for a year and so and that was i was interested in language and it was very very fun but it wasn't necessarily like my main passion it was just like oh this is something i've done and spent enough time doing i don't necessarily want to stay longer in college and pursue other things so um and i've traveled a lot after that so that's how i've used that degree but i haven't really used it um you know in a sort of work business sense necessarily um so where did you go after that i mean you've traveled you traveled a bit i mean did you not think about kind of staying kind of within travel industry, going into international business, anything like that at all? I mean, I'm getting Spanish in languages, but I'm not getting, you know, here's a game about gathering resources for pigs. So how did that that (laughs) kind of... Totally, totally. Well, it's been sort of a a wandering path, to tell you the truth. So I graduated from college and... Mm. Alongside the Spanish degree, I also got a teaching English as a second language, sort of like sub-degree or little certificate. And so I um, taught English in South Korea for a year, um, which was interesting and fun, but felt a little, sort of a little bland. The students weren't necessarily super motivated to learn English. They just were learning sort of out of obligation. Um, Yeah. But when I came back, one of my good friends, one of my best friends, was had just started doing improvisational comedy. Um, and so he was really hyped on it. And he was like, hey, you got to do you got to do improv. You got to come up here and do this this theater thing. And well, I guess your friend is like doing improv and he's like, hey, Tim. And you're like, hey, would you like to do some improv? <laughs> yeah, I was like, hey. <laughs> I'm going to the store. Do you want me to buy you anything? Um, that's one of the best lines you can come up with in improv because people are always shopping. Um, so he he was like, do you want to do some improv? And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah. Started doing improv. And I started working at the front office of the improv theater. And then within like a year, the manager the creative director got fired and they were like hey tim you know how to run the front of the house you should be the creative director and i was like 
well, I can't really do that, but sure, I'll, I'm I'm confident and feel feel like no, I can no, do that. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. I'm going from collecting tickets to deciding what the show is going to be about, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, How exactly. That... So, well, <laughs> it's improv, it's just like, you know? I suppose it's like, what did you do? Did you look at, I would have looked at them seriously in their eyes and I would have went, are you just expecting me to make this up <laughs> as I go you? along? <laughs> they you quite seriously and went, well, yes, Tim, that's exactly. That's exactly what, what <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, that's one of the tenets of improv. One of the central things is like, you are the expert, you know, whatever you're doing, just pretend like mm. you're the expert and you'll figure it out along the way. And so being, you know, a young 24, 25 year old, I was like, sure, I can do this. This, this doesn't seem that hard. And the person before me was just not doing a very good job. She was really controlling and sort of mm. fearful and like, and I was like, well, I can at least do as well as she was doing. I don't really think I'm going to be like an all-star awesome creative director, but I can, you know, at least, you know, keep some shows going and keep it moving for a bit. So, so I took that on and that was pretty fun for two years, but then I was sort of, I was managing a group of like 20 volunteer actors and uh, so it's a pun and not a pun to say there was a lot of drama going on and <laughs> it was a lot of like managing other people's personalities and like mm -hmm. helping them be creative but not being that creative myself did you get frust was it frustrating because you seem to me quite a creative person anyway so it was a little bit of frustration that you kind of went well i probably would have rather been on the stage rather than try to manage it. It must have been like try to herd cats. Yeah, exactly. Very, very similar. And I was, I did end up getting pretty frustrated by that because I would still perform and still get on stage, but I always was kind mm. of wearing, wearing two hats of like, oh, I'm also the director. So I've got to like lay down the law and make rules. And then I'm also trying to just be relaxed and play and be creative. And so it ended up being a little bit stressful in that way. What kind of improv person are you? Are you like a singery type person? Are you, you know, are you kind of like more into kind of the skits? Do you do voices? Uh, does, no. Tim, does Tim Eisner do voice? I reckon you do voices. Yeah, no, no, but don't do any voices. Uh, I sometimes make some funny faces. Um, I'm more of a narrative, like I'm more of a story person and like, like to create fun, weird stories or like mm. do do fun things with language so um i would do some voices but i'm pretty bad you know they would kind of just be funny because they weren't good um mm -hmm. and then i was okay doing some physical comedy but not really i'm pretty tall and lanky and never really got like fully you know into like the physical uh comedic form um so, but yeah, so that, you know, I do a variety of it, but most I feel stronger, strongest about my narrative things. There's a couple like storytelling games mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And I would feel very confident just jumping off and like making up characters and running with that. Did that, did you ever do any kind of Dungeons and Dragons type stuff then? Did that, I did. did you feed into that type of stuff? I did, definitely. So that was another sort of mainstay growing up is my parents had an old box of the first edition D&D &D and my brother wow. is older than me. So he was, he had got into that and we started playing, you know, pretty, pretty frequently growing up, not necessarily by all the 
rules, but, you know, making uh-huh. up stories and, you know, characters and playing that. So that was a mainstay for, for my childhood, like growing up for quite a bit. How long did you stay as a creative director and then the improv side of things? Then? Uh, I lasted for about two years. Um, and then I was kind of, you know, I was kind of just done, like not being creative myself and wanted to do some mm-hmm. more personal creative projects and, you know, and just the stress of it didn't seem necessarily worth it to me anymore. Um, it was also really fun and enjoyable, but it was time to like change things up. So, mm-hmm. um, so I went looking for something a little more like personal and like self-focused that I could do uh, creative wise. Were you um, continue to play games? Were you playing games in the background while you were kind of doing this? I mean, or were you just kind of like, well, no, I'm just chilling out. I'm sitting down because this thing's exhausting being around these people. Um, we were still playing games in the background. It was a little more low key at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I started playing Magic the Gathering when I was like 14 and played off and on, sort of stopped in college for a bit. But then um, afterwards, when I was doing improv, I was doing that occasionally and then also playing, you know, like Catan and Carcassonne and mm-hmm. some, some of those games. And it was, it was a feature, but wasn't necessarily like a centerpiece for me at that time. Was was there any time at that point did you have like a little spiral bound kind of notepad and you were kind of flexing a little bit of the old creative muscles? You know, then at all? I wasn't with then, but it was funny because in, you know, like a year or so before, um, my brother and I had made a drafting game, a drafting card game. We designed our first game. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember why we decided to design a game, but we were like, oh, I think we'd been playing a lot of magic cards and we've been doing magic drafts. And we were like, oh, uh-huh. drafting is really fun. This is the best part of magic. <laughs> yeah. And then we were like, oh, you should make this into a game. And this was before Seven Wonders or Sushi Go or any of that, you know. And so we made up a drafting game. I think it was called Merchant Princes, where you built up your cargo and then sailed, tried to sail across the sea, you know, so there was like mm-hmm. some movement and a board and stuff like that. But it was, and we got like a prototype done and then played it and did maybe one revision, but this was back in like 2003. So there wasn't very many resources or it was hard to figure out what to do after that yeah. point. And so we kind of just let it, let it lie you know after that we were like oh that's cool but whatever okay moving on to the next thing so um so i kind of had just dipped our toes in a little bit way back then um but then it was kind of dormant for the next eight or nine years i didn't really write down any game ideas or have any like strong inkling of like oh i want to do this um so i what, what were you doing on the day job at that point um, so I was managing the theater. That was, I was getting paid to run the theater, um, right. for a couple of years. And then after that, I, I left the theater and sort of went searching for myself, um, in, and I traveled in South America and learned this, wow. uh, jewelry making, um, technique called macrame, which is tiny little knots that you hand tie. And, and when I learned that, I immediately fell in love because it was a very personal thing that I could do myself and have like full control over. So yeah. it was like kind of the direct opposite of the managing the theater. 
And I came back to the States and started living in Portland, Oregon. And there's a Saturday market here where there's a lot of artisan uh, crafters. And so I got a, got a booth there and started making and selling jewelry there for about three years. Um, wow. So that was pretty, pretty fun. But also, and at that point, I started playing a lot more games. My friends down here, we would play Dominion like every day and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Magic and a couple other games, Catan and stuff that were, you know, mainstays. And so, so games became a little bit more present on my mind. Um, See, my mum got into macrame. Oh, yeah. Uh, she was into macrame to the point that she made an owl. Uh-huh. Out of macrame, and this owl thing was made up of brown string, and she must have spent literally weeks on this thing <laughs> to the point that there was like some kind of like everything was string apart from these kind of these green eyes, these green beads, yep. and they're wooden beads. They're wooden beads, and they were the middle eyes of this owl, but one of the eyes was slightly to the right, so it looked like an owl with a squint. And the claws, the claws on it, what she'd done is she'd, because I remember this, Yeah. is that when you were making stuff like this, you had to use glue. Well, she was told she had to use glue to make the claws. So she got the string, and she kind of frayed it a bit to kind of, strengthen out the to to kind of spread out the fibers and then she she basically kind of took the glue and she wet the end of these fibers and she twisted it Uh you know and then she ended up touching stuff and kind of stuck whole piles of stuff to her to her fingers But we had this. Oh, we have this out. No, it was true. It was you know she looked like um she looked like a really badly decorated cake, <laughs> like hundreds, hundreds of thousands, and you know, it was almost like um one of those um really bad kickboxing films where they stick the glue into their hands and then they get the hammers and they get the nails and the glass and everything, you know, that kind of, that's how her hands uh-huh, look because uh-huh. it was just covered in stuff. <laughs> and, and, and this owl must sat in the living room for years, um, for years. And, and every, you would stare up at it and there was something not wrong. And it was this squint this owl had, and it was <laughs> continually, you were just wondering where it was, which, which mouse, were you looking at oh, right. so I totally see but I understood cause, and then you were like oh my word macrame looks rubbish but then when you seen it done really really well it looked absolutely fantastic yeah. so um, so y- you were doing that in the market and you're saying you were playing, playing kind of more games at the time yeah Yep. So, and I actually when I was working at the market it's, it's funny that you mentioned your mom because I had you know, there were some young people who came up to me and were interested in my macrame, but there was a lot of women in their like 60s or 70s who were like, oh, I used to do this back in the 70s. This was great. <laughs> that was like half my customer base was people who had done it in the 70s and were like excited to see it again and would tell me their stories about things they had made and stuff. That's so, just... um, so would have been perfect. Um, so I was working, doing that, and then mm. gradually I got a little bit burnt out of doing macrame. Um, yeah. One, I think I just have a sort of restless, you know, spirit that wants to try a bunch of different things. And two, it's it's a lot of work making, hand-making every single thing that you're selling. Like, it was a lot of, you know, I'd put a lot of creative energy into something and, 
make a cool necklace or some bracelets and then I'd sell them, you know, over the next couple of weeks and they'd be gone and then I'd have to make another batch. And so that, that was really fun to make things by hand, but it also became a little bit draining. Um, and so I started thinking about, you know, some kind of new, I, by that point I was pretty hooked on like having my own business or doing something yeah. entrepreneurial. And I was like, Oh, what's something new I could do that would be, you know, exciting and interesting. And I was like, well, if I do board games, like I'm going to be, I'll learn some stuff. I'm going to have fun. I might not make any money or very much money, but like, it'll at least be, be interesting and be something that I want to want to do, you know? So, uh, so, and it, I was lucky cause at that time that was like 2012, 2013 Kickstarter had just started taking off with board. Yeah. So it was like, yeah, oh, this yeah. is possible. There is, you know, seeing Viticulture, seeing some games where like, oh, wow, they did make, you know, a decent amount of money and able to start a business. So, um, so that's sort of the sort of how it started. And the games, I mean, they've always been a part of my life. I grew up playing chess with my dad and my brother and playing a lot of trick-taking games with my whole family. And, you know, we would sort of, play risk and make up different rules and like, and, and I always enjoyed games. So they were always big and enjoyable. I think sort of the main thread, cause it's not totally connected. My story is kind of like weaves in and out as just sort of a, you know, playful. Like I like things where you're playing or there's some room for, you know, experimentation. And so the, the, the theater sort of led into that. There was a lot of play and the macrame is I would do things that were just sort of free form. I didn't follow any patterns and they would just go wherever I wanted to, you know, lead them or found out where they were going. So, um, so that just sort of led me to board games, which has been the thing that caught my interest and has held my interest. And I've been doing it now for about seven years. So it's been pretty cool. What's your, um, what's your creative process that you follow? Because I know some people like I know like if I speak to like say David Tursey, mm -hmm. he's got millions of ideas, but he seems to just say right, I can nail something down very very quickly. So do you are you a kind of a post-it note type guy? You know, if I went into your office, would you just have ream after ream of post-it notes with three or four word kind of cryptic answers, or are you kind of like? Are you quite do you selective? Do you kind of hone it down into two or three projects that you just focus on and then get to completion kind of thing? Well, I'm still, even after seven years, I'm still kind of figuring it out. So it's kind of, that's kind of the thing of like trying to do a little bit less or take a break. Mm. It's like, oh, let's do less. Oh, wait, no, I want to do this too. Um, my process for games has sort of, you solidified into i'll usually have an idea um either mm -hmm. for theme or mechanic um sometimes you know influenced by playing another game that i like and i'm like oh that dice thing was really cool that they did in there is there something similar i could do with with some other stuff mm -hmm. or watching a movie or reading a book or what you know some kind of thing that inspires theme and then if it catches my eye enough, I'll, I'll write in my notebook. I'll like get a notebook. I really like writing uh, by hand and just sort of sitting mm. in like a comfortable chair or on my couch and, and just start brainstorming like, okay, how would this game work? What, you know, what are the resources? What does a player's turn like? What's the structure? And try and like get ideas out there as far as like what the possibilities are. And then, 
if it's still exciting, keep going on it till I nail down a list of like, okay, these are the things I need to design to make this game happen. So, oh, I'm going to need like 20 cards that do these kind of things. And this is their basic structure. I'll need a board that's got five regions. I'll need this kind of thing. And so I'll make myself a list. I'm a big list person. So I'll be like, oh, mm-hmm. here's a list of like action items that I need to do to make a prototype to play. And then I'll try and break it down into those smaller parts. Um, and it used to be that I would just, anytime I got an idea, I would start writing on it and then start working on it and be like, cool, let me start making a prototype of this. And, and I gradually ended up with, you know, like many designers, I think like 15 or 20 prototypes and some of them weren't that good. Some of them I weren't, wasn't that passionate about and just realized in the last, you know, two years that I didn't have time to do them all. And so now I've started, I have a big, uh, Google sheet spreadsheet where I just write in game ideas that I have. So if I have a game idea that's interesting, I'll write it down there and just sort of leave it for later and be like, I'm going to come back and look at this list and see, you know, maybe if I'm doing a game and I need another mechanic, I'll come through here and see if any of these apply. Or, you know, if I have enough free time, I'll, you know, hopefully someday go back through and look at them and be like, Ooh, this game was really cool. I want to do this now. I, this is the right time. Um, if a game catches my fancy enough and I can't stop thinking about it, then I'll mm. right now, then I'll just keep working on it and I'll be like, okay, I really need to get these ideas down and give this game some solidity and like get it to sort of the first prototype step or get at least the, a, a simple rules document written for now. And then depending on how much time I have, I'll either leave that to later or try and get a play test in. Is there a is there a kind of like a genre game um, that you've you're still wanting to kind of like develop um, as you go? I mean, as part of your ideas, is, is there ones that you're still like wanting to crack that you haven't kind of quite got there? That you know that you find out oh, I'm going to start off with this, and oh no, it's gone like this, and I'd really want to stay like this. But is there a particular kind of style of game that you're still really, really interested in kind of de- developing and kind of getting out there? Yeah, I think the one that's really been uh, trick attractive to me, and I've been thinking about a lot recently, is an engine builder. Um, because, and I'm thinking sort of of like Terraforming Mars or Wingspan or gizmos things like that where you know you're getting cards and they're combining together and keep building and building and your engine sort of accelerates and accelerates and you know the games i've worked on they have some elements some of them have elements of engine building but none of them are really purely focused on that and Mm. um and i think they're i I enjoy games of that type and i just haven't been able to really come up with a good structure or figure out how those work. And I think um, I, that's one type of game that I'd really like to to develop and make at some point. They're really tricky. They're, they're really, really tricky. Because I think it's, it's, one of the, it's one of the few genres of game that where you can actually break the game and break the game quite considerably if you get it kind of like the wrong way. Um, I think, was it, I played a game last year and I'm not going to name it for two reasons because I'm too old and I can't remember the same <laughs> the name of it but also I don't want to I don't want to be throwing shade on somebody who's obviously spent time developing an engine building game but there was a point where we actually needed to stop 
the game and take away that card, actually remove it from the game. Oh, really? Yeah. Because having it in the game with a combination of three, uh, three other, you know, of uh, three other cards, it was the infinite genie problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Came mm-hmm. all of a sudden, I had everything I could possibly want, um, you know, wishes, uh, yep. you know, for forever kind of thing, and that that became like a kind of a, a real issue. So I, I've always got hats off for. Engine. One of the um, one of the funnest examples I remember of an engine building game was, um, and it's pretty kind of relevant to now, was Steampunk Rally, the original uh-huh. first version. Uh-huh. Um, and I just loved the, um, I just loved kind of, oh, here's some fire and there's all of the boost and all of the steam and all of the electricity. And it was just, you were able to kind of get it going, but you were never in the you were never in a kind of a perpetual motion machine. I only mentioned I think Steam Steampunk Rally Fusion has is still on the go or has potentially just recently kind of finished its kind of latest kind of Kickstarter thing. Which, yeah, uh, no, I'm excited to check that one out. I never checked out the first one, but I'm definitely excited for the new uh, Steampunk fu- Steampunk Fusion. And yeah, game, the, the engine builders, I think that's what's interesting is because as a designer, you're kind of playing with fire where you're like, oh, this is this is cool. I'm, I want to have these things that players can build up and feel really powerful, mm-hmm. get these cool things, but I can't let it get out of hand. Like there needs to be some breaks at some points, but you want to mm-hmm. have all this potential that players have without having it being like totally overwhelming. Yeah, it's the runaway, it's the runaway winner syndrome that you get because if you get somebody that has an amazing engine, you want everybody else to be also be easily able to kind of catch up on that engine because otherwise, what seems like a really good idea when it comes to second games and it says, "Oh, do you want to play this again?" It's like, no, because last time I played it, you were able to rattle off kind of thirteen hundred points while I was getting five. So no, let's play, let's kind of play, kind of something else, kind of a. Kind of entirely. Totally. Um, what you develop games like March of the Ants, and then you do something like uh, the Grim Forest, um, and then you do like things like Tidal Blades, and then you've got the um, the most recent one that you did, which was uh, the Wonderland War one. Um, mm-hmm. Is do, do you kind of are you ticking off kind of genres as you go? I mean, is it because is it because some 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 designers that I know they have a very you can look at a particular game and see that's very very Jamie Stegmaier kind of thing or that's right. very very David Turcy. Um, are you kind of is this because of your personality for generally kind of wanting to you 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 do something you do something very very well and then you kind of like move on. So did you just say, well, I'm going to do resource gathering, kind of like Grim Forest, and then I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to go in something different and do so like Tidal Plays, which is completely different, and then Wonder Woman War. I mean, is that is that kind of your like your mo as well? You know, I, I don't, not intentionally, not not as a conscious decision. So I haven't, you know, I, I haven't really actually thought about it, having them all laid out like that, but being like, oh yeah, so there's some social deduction with Grim Masquerade. Yeah. There's area control, there's 4X, there, you know, so um, I have kind of jumped around a lot, which I think is, I think it's more, for me, more of the the exploration of game design and being like, okay, mm. what's this mechanic like? Or what, what does it feel like to incorporate a lot of dice in a game and how, and figuring that out as it goes, you know, there are definitely 
designers who sort of stick with one style of game and do that that style really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I haven't consciously like steered away from that, but I, I have, I think through a mix of sort of luck and probably unconscious, you know, desire, like created a bunch of different, different genres of games. So, um, and I think as, as I said, you know, like engine building is very appealing to me. And like, I've also thought about some really narrative based games that I'm interested in making. And so I, I am, I think more intrigued by doing something new than returning to another uh, type of game that I've already made. Yeah. I, and I, the other thing is as well is are you conscious of, do you have to be conscious of also what's out there at the same time as well? I know that the board game space is kind of like funny that you get kind of like at any one time, there's literally hundreds of games being released. And when you come to Essen um, and it's different, obviously this year, but there's still going to be, a couple of thousand games kind of released. Do you keep an eye on kind of what what else is out there? Um, do you see kind of trends kind of cropping up and things like that? Or do you just kind of like work on an idea in order to kind of make sure it's not affected by kind of, out, kind of, outside, um, kind of outside influences? If you know what I mean. Yeah, I think I have some awareness of the industry and that that sort of percolates in my mind a little bit, you know, like legacy games have been really hot for three or four years and roll and write games. So those are like things I'm like, Oh, maybe I want to dip my toes in those, or maybe it's too late and they've already passed a little bit, but I generally don't pay as much attention as I think I could to that and don't, you know, intentionally set out to be like, Ooh, I think a game like this will be really good right now. This is what the market wants. I'm going to bring this game to market to, you know, and it's going to be really effective. I'm more sort of just nose in my notebook, making, making a game that I'm excited about, you know? Um, and I think it's, if anything, it's more the games that have come out in the last year or two that I've been exposed to that then sort of propel me to be inspired to pursue different ideas or mechanics. Because a lot of my inspiration draws from games I've played and like combining mm. some mechanics from those with other games and sort of building, you know, on top of those ideas. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't think there's anything, um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I think um, it, especially with the number of games that come out and especially as we don't know, it's very difficult to say that's going to be a definite hit or that's going to be a miss or people are going to love that or people are going to hate it. And I think um, there's you can end up spending up too much time trying to see what the latest next game that certain designers and developers that are doing that you end up just accidental osmosis kind of saying, yep. oh, I've heard they've got this mechanic in. I better kind of add it in. I think the um, I think the most interesting example of that is the fact that um, you know, and, and the wingspan that continues to, you know, everybody's <laughs> I don't know, everybody's kind of like, oh, wingspan again, why are you mentioning yeah. that? <laughs> Can we ring the wingspan? Well, please. But the interesting thing about wingspan is that unlike um, say, um, the movie industry, <laughs> there's not been what seems to be kind of like, you know, 50 kind of copies of what kind of Wingspan kind of does, which I found kind of fascinating. Right. 
It is interesting that there's not as many. You know, we see some like themes crop up, like Vikings were really popular mm. like three or four years ago, and then Detectives with Chronicles of Crime, a detective game, and I think there was one other um, one or two others that were sort of on yeah, that same yeah. theme. But but you're right, we don't see like, oh, this is let's everybody was going to do an engine builder that's nature based and like let's just spam this this space. Um, yeah. So it is interesting, and I think that's nice because in the movie industry, it gets a little little crowded there. The other thing about trying to, I think, trying to time a game to be like right for what the market wants is it's really hard to make a game come out in a fixed amount of time. You know, like even when I've been like, oh, cool, this game, this idea is good. It's clean. It's close to finished. Still, I, I'm usually off by like six months or a year for how long it's going to take me to to design, develop, and sort of finalize the game and then bring it to market. And so it's hard to predict like when actually it's going to, so if I have an idea today, it might, I might be able to get it out in in a year if I'm really like drop everything and focus on it. But usually it'll be like a year and a half to three years before it actually comes to fruition. So projecting that far out feels really difficult to me. Yeah. And you don't know what's going to be going to be because there are guys that are in, there are guys that are taking, they're not designed, not all necessarily designing from scratch. What they're doing is they're actively signing people who have created games as well. So I see a lot of um, Kickstarter publishers, I mean, you know, even Skybound themselves um, have signed up kind of uh, people who, you know, have, here's a here's a prototype of a game. What do you think? And it's like, yeah, brilliant. Let's just get that. Let's do it. Let's, <laughs> let's make just it. get that. Yep. Let's do it. Let, let's just make it. Let's just kind of get that kind of. Uh, kind of sorted out so it's very very kind of difficult to to kind of tell the to kind of tell the future um one of the things that the games are uh, noted for is the high kind of production values um the grim forest was um in some ways you know it was there was minis there was beautiful you know there was plastic resources uh, some people didn't like the the amount of stuff that was involved because a lot of it they felt it was a little bit kind of over and above kind of the extras and 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 personally I was thought it was a little bit of a victim of the the stretch goal thing mm-hmm. where there was a little extras that were kind of added on it was the version of Grim Forest that you originally had was it a lot <laughs> was it a lot smaller <laughs> was it a case of like here you go it's two deck two decks of cards uh, James. Uh, <laughs> you know, well, two decks of cards with a tableau. Yep. Uh, did, did, when you got the finished copy, were you just like that? Um, I kind of asked for a sandwich. I feel like I got Christmas dinner. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm still blown away by how gorgeous that game is and how much it, uh, you know, it's it, how how it produced it is. Um, and you know, and I think you know, people say it's overproduced, or they say you know, they feel like there's a lot in there, and there's a you know a lot that's in there is not needed for the game. I think part of its success is that it does bring the world to life so much. Um, but yes, when I first conceptualized it, actually it was the first game that I started working on when I got yeah. board game design, even before March of the Ants, I was had the idea for Grim Forest. Um, and I originally thought I was going to make games myself by hand. 
Um, that was my first plan was to make them and sell them at the Saturday market here in Portland. Cause that's what I had sort of known and had done before. So I was like, cool, I'm going to make a game. And so I was like, well, let's make it card based. Cause I think I can at least print that locally or keep yeah. that, um, you know, do that by, by myself. Um, and so it was all card based from at the first iteration. It was, you know, you had your gather cards and all the, mm. you know, wolves and fables and even the houses you built were just like three card sections of different houses that you'd like build up together. So, um, and then I actually, it was originally called little pig and I attempted to run a Kickstarter for it myself back in the day in like 2015 after I did the March of the ants. And I was like, great, this is going to be good. Called little pig. And I was like, well, I should make little houses for it. If I'm going to bring it on Kickstarter, cause they want, people want some kind of, you know, some blingy items or something that really catches people's eyes. So I've had some little like wood houses that look really silly in comparison to the houses, how they ended up, but they were just sort of like a woods, a flat base. And then like a little wood square middle and then a little triangular top. And the Kickstarter flopped. I just did not project very well uh, and didn't market it very well. And the name Little Pig made people think that it was just a game for little kids, that it wasn't more of a family game or could be played with strategy, you know, like with adult gamers and enjoyed. Um, and so when I passed it off to James, it was I changed the name to Grim Forest because I wanted it to be a little more edgier, have a little more, you know, interesting sounding than little pig and it had cards and it had the little like wood houses. Um, and then from there he went and sort of, and I actually did have little, I had these little pigs that I'd first gotten like the little past the pigs pigs that stand up. But then I'd also found these little pigs at a, a toy store and like painted them up in the different player colors. So there were some little like pig minis that I, I think were included in the copy I handed to him. Um, they might have just been little cutouts of pigs, though. I forget exactly what was what was what was at that at that stage. Um, but then he went and came, he came back to me, and I was like, "Whoa, okay, houses. Oh, okay, dragon. Okay, this and that, you know." And like really took it and ran with it. And you know, I think that's one one of the things that James does really well is he has these big visions and like brings them to life and puts like a lot of energy and thought into the mm. presentation mm. and production, you know, which, um, which I think is, is cool. You know, it's not necessarily my strong suit. I'm more of like, well, we'll just do the minimum or do what, it, what we can here, but you know, there's, there's value in making it, you know, look amazing and like be, you know, really eye catching. But then, I mean, on the opposite end of the spectrum, you then get like, say tidal blades, which seems to me is like, um, there's a everything is functional within that. It'd be you know it's very very difficult to remove any part of that game that wouldn't have an effect on kind of how the game would play. And yeah. to me that that seems to be kind of like as I say the polar opposite. And it, it's still one of these games that um, I look at and I'm going, oh, that's just so nice. Definitely. And I, I think we hit our stride there a little bit more because it was the same team that did Grim mm. Forest. It was, you know, Druid City Games, Skybound, and James, and then Mr. Cuttington, uh, the artists, and myself, and my brother was my co-designer on that. But we, I think from Grim Forest, 
James was like, well, production's really cool, but, you know, hearing people's feedback that like, well, we want these things to be important and, and have a, have a purpose for reason why they look so nice or why we need these big minis. Um, you know, he, he, he learned from that. And so we incorporated it more into the design and, you know, made it all very, um, things made, made the, the choices to make things more essential and more part of the mm. overall game. So, um, you know, and that was with Grim Forest, I passed the game off to James at Gen Con and he and his team did a lot of development and work on it and sort of independently for me for a while. And then when they brought it back, I was like, this is great. This all works well, but they'd made some choices like, you know, of, of some things that I might not have, you know, if I'd been involved more, I might've been like, Oh, if we're going to have minis for the monsters, let's make them more, you know, impactful for the game and make them, you know, earn their place as a component. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. I might not have, you know, that's hard to say. And, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about an expansion for the game and a way to make those, make all those pieces a little bit more impactful and meaningful in the expansions. So, um, but you know, it's a learning process and we're all sort of getting better at it as we go, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, as I say, it's, it's, it's all a kind of a learning experience and that's what, as I say, um, title blaze was the kind of the lean mean kind of killing machine. Um, let's, let's talk about, let's, um, let's dial it back a bit. All right. Tim, let's Ooh. get a little bit, Ooh. you know, let's been intense. Just relax you, a little bit. It's just a little bit, you know, we've had the, can we just want to be having a little stroll through Wait, a nice little I, forest. Since, since we're taking, oh, oh yeah. Tell me about this forest. You know, and there's, you know, sun kind of breaking the leaves slightly a little bit. Um, you know, you're, um, you're breathing in what's pure air. The, you're, you're far enough away from the city and taking big lungfuls of air now. And, and, and as you look up, um, you see above you what can only be described as a rather lovely looking canopy. Oh, Do you know anything about canopies at all, Tim, that you could maybe talk oh. to us about? I do know quite a bit about canopies. So there's the canopy is uh, one of the tallest, highest stories in the forest. Um, A lot of forests have a few layers of like the understory where it's dark and not much sunlight gets through. And then there's the the lower story and you get up to the canopy. Um, And the canopy is actually in a lot of forests is where a lot of the life lives. You know, there's not much sunlight in the dense like canopies of rainforest. There's not much sunlight that actually gets down to the the lower part of the rainforest or water. And so a lot of plants and animals and things live in the canopy of a rainforest. So it's a very diverse, vibrant ecosystem um, that that has evolved there. If you were going to consider making some kind of maybe interactive cardboard type of experience in relation to a canopy, what would you do? You know, I think what if I was to do that, I would really want um, to try and build in this feeling of you're trying to get things that um, the right balance of plants and animals Mm -hmm. and trees that sort of can co-inhabit the canopy in a symbiotic way and and to really find the right balance for your ecosystem there and so i think mm-hmm. like some card drafting where you, you know you have players selecting from different card pools of what kind of you know if they're going to add more trees to their forest or more uh, plants or maybe they want to attract some toucans or a sloth to help their forest grow 
Um, I think that would be, you know, the direction I would go in. Uh, I would also be a little, you know, I think there's in the rainforest, one of the cool things is there's a lot of, you know, it seems like a peaceful, really fun place, but there is some like competition and there's some threats. There's a lot of things trying to get that sunlight and trying to get that water. So I think there would be, you know, some, a little bit of danger in the game too. There might be uh, some fire that could happen. If you're, if you're yeah. not careful with your forest, there might be some disease that, you know, your animals, if you, if you have get too many animals in your forest, they might be susceptible to some disease. Um, but mostly it would be about, you know, finding the ideal balance of sunlight and rain and just creating this really thriving, beautiful, bountiful forest. That sounds like you've, um, you've almost planned this out a little bit. Well, to, <laughs> to be honest, I've thought about it a little bit. I do have a game called Canopy, um, which is no. coming to Kickstarter. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I know you were just somehow just daydreaming about the rainforest. I but. just was thinking about I know. <laughs> I'm thinking about planet Earth. You're thinking about commercialism. Oh man, I'm, how can we sell the rainforest? That's the thing I'm thinking about. Um, is so I have a game coming to Kickstarter in two uh, in a couple weeks, uh, and uh, it's a two player game, uh, and you're drafting cards. So you're you're picking from three different piles. And you'll be adding those cards to your tableau. So you're building up uh, different plants and animals and you're growing your trees that can keep getting taller and taller. And uh, yeah, I think it's, I think I'm really excited for it. It's going to be a really fun, uh, streamlined uh, two player drafting game, which I think drafting at two players is kind of a hard, a difficult thing in a lot of games. Like a lot of drafting games that go to two players don't work that well uh seven wonders duel being a notable exception um but i think i'm I'm excited about it it's one of the lighter games i've designed i've you know i've been dude like wonderland's war and title blades and a couple of these games are of pretty epic scope so they've got a lot of stuff going on they deliver this very um big experience and so i was excited to make something a little bit smaller and more compact and really try and uh constrain myself a little bit to be more focused on, you know, like how, okay, let's keep it approachable and keep it a sort of entry level game. And so I'm excited about that because part of the thing that's, that's a little bit of a bummer about game design is I have a lot of friends who don't play really complex games. So they're like, Oh, what are you working on? I'd love to play it. And I'm like, well, thank you. But I don't, I don't actually think you'd enjoy trying to learn these rules and sit down for a two hour gaming experience, you know, like some of them, yes, but some of them I'm like, well, I'll tell you about it, but I don't, you know, it's not really something I can share with everybody. Yeah. I think in that, those situations it's really difficult. The explaining can beat people off actually getting them to sit down and actually play around. You get them playing around and they'll go, all right, I get it. But it's taking you 45 minutes to explain exactly how we're going to be doing it in the first place. It's like, yes, I know. That's why I'm just trying to get you to the table Totally. Just to play the damn game. Um, you're going to be self, are you self-publishing this one through Kickstarter then? Uh, yep, I'll be doing a Kickstarter uh, as Weird City Games. And mm. um, yeah, I'm excited about that because there's there's fun things. I really like working with uh, publishers and uh, Skybound and Druid City in particular. It's been a really great mm. relationship, but it's, it's fun sort of running everything myself as well. There's some, you know, independence there and some, you know, just ability to sort of have control of the whole project. 
Um, so yeah, I'm looking forward to that. And it's, I really like sort of connecting with the backers on Kickstarter and involving them yeah. in some of the decision-making and some of the, you know, like some direction of like, Oh, what wildlife are we going to add to the game or what kind of mm. new things are we going to do? And just listening to their feedback has been really helpful during my, the last games that I've designed. Have you, um, with it being a card, with it being like a, a more simplistic card game, does that, is that affected the kind of the, the price that you're going to be for the pledge levels and things like that have you managed have you nailed that final price down because i know that these things can change literally to like the last couple of days before the campaign goes live so have you got have you thought about kind of like pledge levels for the campaign and things like that i have definitely and i've got them in a good ballpark and i am trying to keep mm. it pretty affordable one you know it's a two-player game and two it's a, a mm. longer experience so i'm gonna have i think like a lot of kickstarters do these days is a uh, basic sort of retail pledge level and then the deluxe pledge level which will have some like little wooden animals and other sort mm -hmm. of uh, fancy fancy pieces that you can get for a little bit more. So there'll be a premium one that's like, okay, if you really want to get the full, you know, deluxe experience, you can do that. But the, the general pledge, I'm probably going to try and keep close to uh, around $20, you know, to keep that affordable. And, yeah. and I think one that's, you know, I like, especially in these sort of times that are a little tougher financially, you know, I want to have something that's uh, a little more approachable to people. And it's, it's nice as a Kickstarter creator to trying to track just more backers, you know, like, um, so that it's a little easier for people to sign up and you can see like some campaigns like, um, tiny Epic has done really well because they're like, Oh, we've gotten, you know, like 10,000 people. So then they have 10,000 people that know their games and enjoy them and will, you know, yeah. look at their next games a little bit more. And so I've got a couple bigger games that I've been working on for a while that I hope to bring to Kickstarter. And so I think having, you know, if I can attract a couple thousand new people to, to weird city games and, you know, get the chance to deliver a good product to them, then I'll have sort of built up that relationship too. So, mm -hmm. um, and then also thinking on the retail side, you know, I hope to bring the game to retail, um, after the Kickstarter finishes. And so making something that can go on a good number of shelves or be easily, you know, displayed in like a, you know, be a good seller at retail is also um, sort of on my mind. So if you were to describe, if you describe Canopy on a sell sheet fashion in about 57 words. 57. Um, 57. I'm going to count them then, you know, why should people consider jumping in? Um, backing canopy yeah well canopy is a game uh specifically designed for two players uh that will immerse you in the rainforest it's um a great blend of luck and skill and it's got this push your luck drafting mechanism that is very engaging and very fun where you're um each turn is you have to sort of weigh the benefits of each set of cards for yourself um, and it's gorgeously illustrated by Vincent Dutre. So there's also a very, um, lovely package for it. I think I'm over my 57 words or I'm rambling. It's 106 just I'm, now. Okay. 106. All right. Well, I could cut some of that out. Some of that was just flat. Well, I'm going to have to cut some of it. So, <laughs> no, we can go. I go over the so then we can jump to the goes, that was so well done, Tim. You came right in <laughs> if you can. at 57 words. I'm <laughs> so, so it, it's just the mark of an absolute pure professional 
that we're dealing with somebody who can just rise up to the challenge. But um, no, I agree with you. I've, <laughs> I don't know. I must be getting old and Scottish and stingy as I get older because I kind of I, I do troll past some of the Kickstarter things and I'm going, how much? Right. Oh, <laughs> how yeah. much you want? Do you know what I mean? I've got. A, could you take kidneys? Totally. Because I've got two of them. You could have one of them, and that's fine because there's some business models and these companies are doing absolutely fantastically well and that's brilliant but so i'm just like <gasps> i get asthma sometimes yeah. when i look at pledge levels <laughs> what are you doing kind for, of goodness yeah me, but. and for me i mean like i want to make games like i i don't want to be able to support myself you know this is my main my full-time job mm. but i also want to like my main goal is to have a lot of people play my games, you know, I want to, yeah. like that, that's going to make me feel fulfilled and the happiest as a designer, if my games reach a lot of people and they can enjoy them. And so trying to keep those barriers to entry low, you know, whether they're the, you know, the theme or the approachability of the mechanics or the cost is, you know, are all things that I kind of take into account now. Yeah. And I also not being funny, but the, <laughs> if this does become the norm, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be looking at ways involving their families kind of playing games. Definitely. And I'm not just talking about, you know, and I'm not just talking about kind of like, oh, everybody kind of get around and we'll have a nice simple game or something. It's like, um, this could be a very, very good thing for the tabletop industry, depending on how we approach it kind of thing. And I think, you know, games like Canopy, Grim Forest and things like that are good kind of, points to say to people yes i know we're all sick of playing monopoly but look at this what i've got here and then and then once you get them through that then it's only a matter of time before you're getting them on the more complicated stuff as well you know that's 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 the way i look at it definitely yeah no i think it's it's there's a potential for you know we'll see how everything shakes out but i think board games have a good potential to be you know stay as an integral part and sort of even grow in this time and as a, a small group activity that people can do in their houses and and provide like a lot of enjoyment and you know learning possibilities for kids and for adults and just like a fun way to interact so so and that for me is is something i'm excited to to work on so i've been trying to do some some more simpler games or smaller games uh for that and also because they're a lot easier to design they just take less time and you get less of the headache of revision and the slog and the tableau of the game design process. Exactly. And it gives a chance, an opportunity for my son to turn around to me like he did this evening and say, dad, you're just rubbish. <laughs> which, which is what he did. What did he say that? Because yeah, I lost the game. Uh... Um, I lost the game very, very quickly. Um, I was playing, um, I was playing a, uh, a kind of a, a rather simplistic but very fun game and he, I lost very 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 quickly and he laughed and he's just dad you're just rubbish you're and just he's, rubbish he's, you're just rubbish so there you go um if people want to keep an eye on you on the internet webs where do you exist on the internet webs mr eisner uh i am on uh, the social media on facebook at tim eisner mm-hmm. and then also weird city games has a facebook page and mm-hmm. weird city games also has a website that's just www.weirdcitygames.com and those are mostly where i'm residing unless i'm on kickstarter uh, depending on the time of year. So yeah, would love to uh, connect with anybody who wants to talk games or play games or anything. 
Superb. Well, what we'll do is we'll make sure that we put all the links in the show notes so that we've got notes to show. Perfect. Um, oh, can I ask you one question before we... Uh, yes, you can. Just, yes, you can. So I'm curious about this title here, that We're Not Wizards, and the intro. It sounds like you're really not wizards, because it could be called sort of snarky that you are wizards, but you're saying you're not. So, yeah, I'm just curious okay. about that one. Okay, okay. The theme tune, right, mm-hmm. is meant to be 1980s sitcom. Mm. And when... V- when Vine was a when Vine was a thing, which was a couple mm. of years ago, oh now, yeah, oh yeah, I did essentially a very very cheesy nineteen eighties intro of the camera, of me having my back to the camera and turning around and smiling at the camera in various different places. Uh-huh. And I'm continually thinking that one day I will actually film the We're Not Wizards theme tune as it was intended in a kind of a almost like a. Um, a Golden Girls type kind of intro, but we'll need to to see. Um, in terms of the name, uh-huh. the name of the show is all because I went to a board. I was started going to the board game club probably about six, five, six years ago now, maybe longer. And then when I was at work and I was like came in with like various colourful boxes. They were asking, well, what are you doing? Where are you going? I says, well, I'm going to the board game club after work. Mm-hmm. To which they says, all oh, right, okay, you're going to be casting spells and uh-huh. started calling me Harry Potter and, you know, uh-huh. saying Expelleramus and, you know, obviously you're going to be fighting a dragon and are you going to be Gandalf? And I turn around and says, no, I just, um, we do all different types of things, but I just, you know, we're not wizards. <laughs> And that's where it came from. Nice. That's I like it's it. not it's not it's not because I looked around and, and saw that the fact that everybody else used the word board in their title. It's just the fact <laughs> it was something different. I like and it. It was I was in fact I was quite angry at the time. I was like, look. And I grabbed <laughs> him by his fat head and I went, We're not wizards. There We're we not go. wizards. This is a game and about it was trains. Worth, <laughs> it was worth exactly. It was worth it was worth the disciplinary. That's what yeah, I yeah, totally. <laughs> worth awesome. Disciplinary. Um, if you want to keep an eye on what we're up to, then you, there's a couple of places you can go to if you want to listen to more of the blogs. If you want to listen to more of the podcast, listen to the blog. You can listen to the blog <laughs> if you want. I don't care. If you want to listen more of the podcast, go to we'renotwizards.com. If you want to read our words, go to we'renotwizards.co.uk. If you want to see us on Instagram and Twitter and other places, just it's forward slash we're not wizards is usually going to find us. If you like to watch our videos, because we're doing reviews of videos and other videos, I don't know. Whatever takes my fancy, it's like I'm a f- I can do whatever I want. It's my my show. Then you can go to uh, youtube.com forward slash we're not wizards tabletop podcast. If you like what you've listened to tonight, just tell somebody else because we spread like butter. Um, but make sure you <laughs> check out Canopy when it comes to Canopy when it comes to uh, Kickstarter on the 9th of June, not June 9th. That's not how you do dates. Goodness sake. Ah, apologies. Apologies. <laughs> That's fine. No, you should. <laughs> and so you should. Um, Are you with but Thank you very much. <laughs> look. look. No, Don't even no, let's not sorry. go there. Right. Okay. <laughs> um there's only a couple more things to do. Thank you very, very much for coming on, Tim. Uh, this has been 
and a lot of fun. Oh, it was my um, pleasure. I really enjoyed being here. This was a, one of the most fun podcasts I've been on. Awesome. Um, and um, there is only a couple more things to do. The first thing is to remember we're many things, but we're not wizards. Are we wizards, Tim? No. Oh, okay. I am. Oh. And the second, the second oh, wait, thing, on, and the, I... and the second thing is to say goodbye. So it's a goodbye from the rather wonderful, rather fantastic Mr. Tim Eisner. Say goodbye, Tim. Goodbye. And it's a goodbye for me. Remember, is it secret? Is it safe? Stay safe. Roll sixes. Make something awful. And goodbye. A wizard is never late. Noisy early. He arrives precisely when he means to.